Hey there, this is Brian Zond, and welcome to my sermon podcast. I'm glad that you're interested in the sermons that I preach here at Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. And if you ever feel inclined to help us by supporting us financially, you can do that at our website, wolc.com. Thank you. All right, today I want to preach right out of our gospel reading for this Sunday and this week. You just heard it. I want you to hear it again. The sermon I'm going to bring forth from this text is called Not So Among You. Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 35. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came forward to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And Jesus said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. But Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized with? They replied, we are able. Then Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared. So among the earliest disciples of Jesus were two brothers from the fishing village of Bethsaida, very near to Capernaum. Their names are James and John, the sons of Zebedee. And like their father Zebedee, they were fishermen. Now after Jesus called James and John Zebedee to follow him, be part of his 12 disciples that he would form into apostles, he gave them a nickname, Bonerges. It was a nickname he gave those two boys, disciples, James and John Zebedee, Bonerges. What does Bonerges mean? It means sons of thunder. (laughs) Now, that probably tells us a little bit about these guys. I mean, I don't know the whole story behind it, but you name somebody sons of thunder, they're probably not quiet. They're probably not demure. I'm going to assume that James and John were loud, forceful, and maybe ambitious. In the text here in Mark chapter 10, we find Jesus and his disciples on their way to Jerusalem for the final time. It is now time for what they have known about Jesus for several years now to go public. And that is that he is the Messiah. That's why they're going to Jerusalem, is for Jesus to become the king, to go public with being the Messiah. Now you need to understand some things about the expectations for Messiah. The Messianic expectations among the people in the first century were formed by two models 
One, King David, who you know about. You know, King David, who was the warrior king who fought Israel's enemies, particularly the Philistines, and brought them into greatness as a nation. The second one you may not know as much about because we don't find him in the Old Testament. He's in the intertestamental, intertestamental literature. But I'm talking about Judah Maccabee. Judah Maccabee. Judah the hammer. Judas Maccabeus. That's what, that's what Maccabeus means. Judah the hammer. That probably tells us something about him too. And Judah Maccabee led Israel in the 160s B.C. 160s B.C. Uh, in a war against their Greek overlords of the Seleucid Empire. You don't have to, you know, you don't have to know all that history. But, but they were oppressed by the Seleucid Empire, Syrian Greeks, and Judah the Hammer became their general who led them into a period of liberation and freedom. And he, he founds the Hasmonean dynasty, which is what ruled Israel through their high priests all the way up until the time of King Herod. Well, the important thing, though, is that Judah Maccabee becomes a national hero. He's something like the Jewish George Washington. Think of him like that. That's how people thought about him. And these two people, King David and Judah Maccabee, that's the model for what they are hoping for. Because now, in Mark chapter 10, in the A.D. 30s, Israel is occupied and dominated by Rome. And they're waiting, they're waiting, they're waiting, they're waiting. People are waiting. We need a new King David. We need a new Judah Maccabee to come and liberate us. Lead us in war to victory. That's everybody's expectation. That's Peter, Andrew, James, John, the disciples, Mary, the mother of Jesus. That's her expectations. What everybody, John the Baptist, it's what everybody expects Messiah to do. And if they're confessing that Jesus is that Messiah, that's what they're expecting Jesus to do. And so they're on their way to Jerusalem for Jesus to be crowned king of the Jews and for the inevitable war that will follow. Because, you know, once Jesus is crowned king of the Jews, you know, Herod and Caiaphas and all the way in Rome, Tiberius Caesar are not going to go, well, okay. No, there's going to be a war. And so there is, you know, the tension of going to war. That's the situation they're in. Now, on their way there, the sons of thunder, James and John, approach Jesus privately. And they say to him, Rabbi, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. <laughs> well, isn't that just lovely? Yes, that's, you know, that's, that's how we pray, isn't it? God, just do for me whatever I ask, okay? Yeah, the primary purpose of prayer is not to get God to do what we think God ought to do, but to be properly formed. They don't know that. They haven't been to prayer school yet. And so uh, James and John say, we, we want you to just, we, just, just tell us, just promise that whatever we ask, whatever we ask, you're going to do it for us. You ever had your kids do that? Yeah. And of course, what do you say? You're going to have to tell me. What do you want? And they said, uh, well, we want to sit with you in your glory at your right hand and at your left. 
One of us on your right hand, one of us on your left. They have, um, see, they have in their mind three thrones, kind of a triumph. Oh, Jesus will be the highest one, yeah. But, you know, somebody's got to be number two and number three. And that's what they want. They want to be at Jesus' right and left, enthroned, sharing royal power with Jesus. That's their request. To which Jesus says, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup? Are you able to be baptized with what I'm going to be baptized with? They said, we're able. He says, all right. Yeah. Yeah, you will drink that cup. And you will be baptized with what I'm baptized with. But to sit at my right hand and left is not mine to grant. It is for those for whom it has been prepared. Mysterious. Let's continue the story. Pick it up in verse 41. When the ten heard this, they were not happy. See, they, James and John had approached Jesus privately, but word got out. People figured out what they were up to. When the ten heard this, they began to be angry with those sons of thunder, James and John. So Jesus called them and said to them, you know that among the Gentiles, the people that don't know God, the pagans, the idolaters, those whom they recognize as their rulers lorded over them and their great ones are tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. Not so among you. Go ahead and say it with me. Not so among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave of all. So Jesus once again tries to explain to his disciples that the way of the world is not the way of God. That's a hard lesson to learn. The way of the world is not the way of God. The disciples think they can go the way of the Gentiles and arrive at the kingdom of God. They think that they can go ahead and basically emulate the way of Caesar, the way of Herod, the way of Pilate, but they'll do it for the right reasons. They'll have the right motives. They're going to go the way of the Gentiles, but arrive at the kingdom of God. They're going to do what the Gentiles do, but for the right reason. And therefore arrive at the right place, the kingdom of God. But Jesus knows, you know what that is, that's, that's, that's the end justifying the means. They said, well, as long as our aim, as long as we're, we're, we're going we're to bring the kingdom of God, so, you know, whatever means it takes to get there is what's necessary and it's good. Well, Jesus knows better than that. Jesus knows that the end does not justify the means. Jesus knows that the means are the end in the process of becoming. How you get there is where you're going to end up. And Jesus has already faced this in the third temptation in the wilderness. 
The temptation was to take a shortcut and just go the way of the world, to conquer the world, to receive the world, to rule the world. But Jesus knows that that is to bow down to the devil. And he said, no. The way of the world, then and now, is to grab for all the power you can. Just, just the, all the power you can. And then become a tyrant, meaning an absolute ruler. Just give, give me absolute power. I'm going to do good stuff with it. That's what we think. That's the way of the world. It's to grab for all the power you can, never let go of it. Of it. But Jesus says to them, look, guys, I understand. I know how the world works. You get all the power you can. And the one that gets the most is a tyrant. It shall not be so among you. No, that's not how we're going to do it. That's not how the kingdom comes. It shall not be so among you. You're to be different. This is what Stanley Hirewas means when he says, the first task of the church is to make the world the world. The first task of the church is to make the world the world. Do you understand what he means by that? He said the first task of the church is to be something so other that people go, oh, I see, there's a difference. The world's like that. The followers of Jesus are like this. The first task of the church is to be different from the world. Not to say we're going to use the ways of the world to do good things for Jesus in the world. No. No. That, that's, that's where we get we think that our first task is to do something. No, our first task is just to be something and it is to be something other. It's to be the people of Jesus that makes the world look like the world and the church look like the church and nobody confuses the two. But when we reach for the ring of power, oh, the ring of power, it is so seductive. Poor old Bormer, he couldn't resist it. I mean, it just, it's so seductive. When we reach for the ring of power, we abandon the way of Jesus. And this, by the way, is a message the American church desperately needs to hear. So listen up, all of America. <laughs> See, this exposes the folly of those who think the kingdom of God comes by political or military means. It does not. When you hear, and I'm going to just say this very dispassionately, very calmly, when you hear Christians talking about God raising up politicians or raising up generals or whatever to bring about his purposes, just remember they don't know the first thing about the basic nature of the kingdom of God. It's just not how the kingdom of God comes. The kingdom of God does not come by the way of the Gentiles. That is the way of tyrannical power. The kingdom of God comes by humility and childlike trust and love and service to all. That's what Jesus says to them. That's how the kingdom comes. Not by power, as you think of it, but by childlike humility and service to all. Verse 45. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus didn't come to be a tyrant. He came to be a ransom. What is a ransom? You know, a ransom is a, is a payment for the release of a prisoner. 
a payment for the release of a prisoner. By giving his life over to death, Jesus ransomed us for God. That's what it says in Revelation 5. Not from God. <laughs> Don't make that mistake. That's where atonement theories go off the rails. It's somehow along the way, somewhere, some people picked up the idea that Jesus was a ransom from God. In other words, that Jesus was saving us from God. Jesus is not saving us from God. We were not the prisoner of God. We are prisoners of sin and death. That's what Jesus is ransoming, ransoming us for. So we were held in the prison of sin and death and Jesus gave his life over. Well, he, he becomes sin that he, he might forgive all of sin in mass. And then he goes down into death. Jesus himself becomes the prisoner of death. He is the ransom. He, he gives himself over to death that he might claim for his own all the prisoners of death. That's good news. Now, let's go back, though. Let's go back to the request of James and John. So these sons of thunder, they come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, we want you to do whatever we ask. What do you want? Grant us to sit, one at your right hand, one at your left, in your glory. James and John have a worldly idea of glory. I mean, that's what they, you're coming into your glory. Yes, that's right. And we want to sit at your right hand and at your left in your glory. But they have a world. See, in their mind, you know what? They're, they're, they're picturing three golden thrones in splendor. In a palace. And they see Jesus elevated in the center. And then on the right and on the left, James and John will sit on thrones. So that they can rule with Jesus. They can, they can, they can share in the power of Jesus over everything else. In splendor and glory upon golden thrones. That's what they envision. They imagine sharing power and glory in the way that King David and Judah Maccabee had power and glory. But Jesus tells the sons of thunder, you do not know what you're asking. You think you're asking for one thing, but you're ask, actually asking for another. And then he alludes to suffering, cup of suffering, baptism of suffering. Are you able? They said, we're able. He says, well, you know what? You're right. In due course, you will drink that cup and be baptized in some suffering. But to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. This is a mysterious statement because the reader is, of the gospel is left wondering, who is it that it's prepared for? Is it, I don't know, is it like Moses and Elijah or... Or who? Maybe it's Peter and Paul. But who is it? Well, Mark the Evangelist has complete mastery over his gospel, and he keeps us in suspense about who is granted to sit with Jesus in his glory at his right hand and in his left until at last Mark reveals the mystery. And with him, they crucified two bandits, one on his right and one on his left. 
this picture here. That's what James and John were asking for. Now, do you understand? Do you understand that when James and John says, we want to be with you in your glory at your right hand and your left, they were asking for that. And that's why Jesus says to them very soberly, you don't know what you're asking. You think you're asking for one thing, you're asking for another. You think you're asking to be enthroned in splendor on a golden throne. Actually, you're asking to be crucified with me. And this brings us into the mystery of the cross. The crucifixion of Christ is his glory. It's not his shame. It's his glory. Yeah, the Romans crucified people to put them to shame. But Paul says it didn't put them to shame. It didn't put Jesus to shame. It put the principalities and powers to shame. Everything was flipped. Pontius Pilate in the name of Caesar Augustus with the high priest Caiaphas and King Herod. All of these powerful men are putting Jesus to shame. But Paul says, no, it all flipped around. And the crucifixion of Christ becomes his glory and it brings shame upon the principalities and powers. See, the issue is glory. Jesus, we want to be with you at your right hand and your left. We want to sit with you at your right hand and your left when you come into your glory. But they have the wrong idea of glory. Remember when the devil tempted Jesus in the wilderness. He took him up on a high mountain and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to Jesus, these kingdoms and their glory have been given to me. And I give it to whomever I will. If you will just bow down to me, I'll give you these kingdoms and their glory. The sons of thunder have, this, have that idea of what glory is. That ultimately, glory is the glory of conquest. The glory of a war won. The glory of triumphing over the, your, your enemies. Grinding them into the dust. Having a victorious parade through the city. That's what the devil tempted Jesus with. And Jesus said, no, that's the bow down to you. I'm not doing that. But James and John are seduced by it in all of us. The glory of God is not the glory of conquest. The glory of God is the glory of redeeming love. This is Christ in his glory. Now you have to renew your mind to see that. But that's Christ in his glory. That's the cross of Christ is the throne of God. Mm. The cross of Christ is the enthronement. The crucifixion is the enthronement. I took this picture somewhere along the Camino de Santiago in 2019. You know, I went, I stopped at every church I could. And this one caught my eye. 
Because you see, it's, 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 it's a wonderful theological statement in the form of a crucifix. It's Christ the King upon the cross. But the cross has been made to resemble something of a throne and Christ is not wearing a crown of thorns. He's wearing a royal crown. And the message of that crucifix is that the cross of Christ is the throne of God. And then John the Revelator makes that very clear in Revelation chapter 5 when he gives us the vision of Jesus as a slaughtered lamb, a little lamb, it's a lamb, and it's been slain, slaughtered is what he says. But it's standing, so it's alive, slaughtered but alive, risen. And where does he place this slaughtered lamb? At the very center of the throne of God. So the slaughtered lamb refers to crucifixion, but it's at the very throne of God. The point is that the cross is the throne of God. The crucifixion of Christ is also the enthronement of Christ. Christ forever rules the nations from his cross. Christ is risen, but Christ still reigns from the cross. That's what we see in the book of Revelation. When the slain lamb is seen standing in the center of God's throne in heaven, it reveals that the sacrificial death of Christ is the very way God rules the world. So, saints of God, it is not our task to change the world or rule the world. We don't have to win an election or win a war for the kingdom of God to come among us. The kingdom of God does not come by ballots or bullets. It comes by the cross of Christ. Our task is to be a community formed around the crucified one. A community of grace and love that take up our cross and follow the Lamb. We don't have to change the world. We don't have to rule the world. Christ is the savior of the world. And Jesus Christ is the king of kings and lord of lords who rules the world from his holy cross. All we need to do is join the chorus of heaven in saying, worthy is the lamb. Amen. Stand with me. Worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb. That's where the world is saved. That's where the world is changed. That's where the world is ruled. Worthy is the Lamb. And now we come to the table to partake of the broken body and the shed blood of the Lamb and receive grace and mercy and forgiveness and everlasting life. Amen. Join with me in confessing our, our glorious faith. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. 
On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And now, let's confess our sins and receive the forgiveness of the Lord. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. And God is gracious. God is gracious to all who confess their sins because you've been ransomed. You've been bought back from sin and death for God. And so God is gracious to all who confess their sins and in humility ask for mercy. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, your sins are forgiven. You're forgiven. (sighs) Breathe the fresh air of forgiveness. You're forgiven. And this is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. It is made ready for those who love him and for those who want to love him more. So come, you who have much faith and you who have little. You who have not been here often and you, you who have and you who have been here often, come because it is the Lord who invites you. It is his will that those who want him should meet him here. The body of Christ broken for you. The blood of Christ shed for you.